This is Media Sales Mastery, the podcast for media sales professionals. In each episode, we bring you information, insights, and ideas from some of the industry's top thought leaders. Connect with us to help pick the topic and guide the show. Hey, this is Media Sales Mastery, the podcast for media sales professionals, coming at you with episode one of a new season. I'm your host, Jamie Wood. Okay, this episode topic was actually a bit of a difficult one to give a name to, and that's kind of funny because it's actually a very common issue for media salespeople, overcoming client media bias. What do you do when a client doesn't like your media brand or channel? So client media bias takes on many forms. Uh, you know, it can be anything from a client listening to a different radio station, not watching free-to-air TV themselves, uh, thinking that no one reads print anymore, disliking the content, the brand, even just kind of disagreeing with the opinions of your content or journalist teams. One of the more common ones in direct sales that comes up a lot is a client being burnt by a media channel. So, you know, being engaged by a direct salesperson, having a failed campaign, and then just kind of really being reluctant to even want to meet with somebody from that particular channel anymore. There are plenty more um, examples here as well. So I guess the main thing to take away though is what do we do when our livelihood relies on our ability to actually engage advertisers in order to sell our media proposition? You know, getting met with client media bias can make an already difficult job really bloody challenging. Our guest today, Nat Harvey. She's a good friend of mine. She's a former business partner. Uh, She's the national sales director of Seven West Media, and she's also the chair of Think TV Australia. Now, having worked on both publisher side and agency side, Nat is no stranger to what media bias can look like, uh, what the drivers are behind it, and importantly, the approaches and the strategies required to make even the most jaded client view your medium in a more favorable light. Really looking forward to getting into this chat make sure you give me a follow on LinkedIn. I'm going to plug that every episode. So please follow, please subscribe. Um, Just really appreciate everybody making comments and even uh, giving me different, I can't ask my sales manager that topics and questions. So keep them coming. Without any further delay, let's get into it. The first five. Nat, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No, it's my absolute pleasure. I know we've been trying to do this for a while. Before we jump in, give us a bit of an overview of your current role at Seven West Media and maybe your background in the media industry as well. Sure. So um, my current role, I'm National Sales Director. I've been in this role for a few years. I've been at Seven for seven years this month, so lucky seven at seven. Um, Prior to that, UM in Sydney and uh, Brisbane. Um, I was at UM for 10 years. Prior to that, I worked at Mediacom and... Before that, actually, my first job in media, I was an office assistant to the CEO of Channel 7. So talk about a boomerang. Um, And my current role uh, requires me to be across the whole market um, nationally, which is, I think, quite a blessing because I get to work with so many different people in different markets and different clients. Um, So that's a really brief history of my career and kind of what I'm doing now. And I I love actually, because I think you and I have spoken about this in the past quite a bit, our topic of overcoming client media bias. Given you've worked publisher side, you've also worked agency side, have you been the victim and or the perpetrator of this type of (laughs) client media bias in your career? And and I suppose, what is it in your definition too? What What is client media bias? 
My answer would be yes. So have been the victim and also the perpetrator, which is a bit of an aggressive word. But um, if I think (laughs) back to my old days of media buying, uh, and that's where, you know, you get a brief and you think straight away, oh, I know how to answer this brief without doing any of the research first up or getting any insights um, and kind of jumping to uh, solutions without having done the rigor before it. Um, not saying that's what I did, but I certainly, um, you know, can see how when you first get a brief that that's what you do. Um, and then from a sales perspective, absolutely. And I think the, the biggest reason for that is because we often um, – think that we're the audience that we're trying to target and that, you know, the rest of Australia has the same consumer um, consumption habits as what we do as media buyers. Um, And that that is a real challenge, uh, particularly for, um, for let's call it legacy media, um, in particularly with television. And I would assume that radio and newspapers have a similar challenge in that it's not the bright, shiny new thing, but they work. Um, And so, you know, overcoming that perception that, you know, if you're a 25-year-old media buyer, that a 55-year-old who you're trying to target has the same consumption behaviour as you. I don't think it's deliberate, by the way. I think it's just human nature that people go, oh, well, this is what I think we need to do to answer a brief. I I completely agree. And I think it's a really good setup for today's topic because we're going to take a little bit of a different approach. Media Sales Mastery. So I thought rather than like a series of questions like I normally do, let's have a bit of fun and sort of break this down maybe around like the five, what I kind of think are maybe the five most common forms of media bias. And then I wanted to kind of unpack and reflect on them with you, but I want to put a disclaimer out there before anyone gets too offended. Um, This is a bit tongue in cheek, right? We're having a bit of fun with this. It's very similar to the seven sins of agency sales episode we did a little while ago um, with a mutual friend of ours, Adam Hickey. So I want to go through all five of them, and then let's just have a bit of a think about, A, why this might be a form of media bias and why this behavior might be manifesting, and then B, what are some strategies or tactics or approaches that a media salesperson can sort of take to then unpack that and maybe maybe overcome that. So our first one, and the name is the shiny new toy innovation junkie, right? So media and advertising, we're in an innovative industry, we're very forward thinking, and what this seems to cause is a level of client obsession with like that new emerging, to- you know, new emerging technology or the new platform or the new thing. Um, now, this certainly isn't all bad. Early adopters can actually be your best friend, but but let's discuss this one. This type of bias when you're selling legacy media. What's your what's your thoughts behind why this is is behaviour we see? What are some ways to work around it? Well, I think that if I interpret that maybe in a different way, in that. You know, people are always going to test and learn new platforms, which I think is a really good thing. You know, if you're looking to achieve a better result than what you've done previously or you want to get, you're trying to open up new categories or new audiences, then you do need to try different platforms 100%. Um, but so long as you understand why, like what the objective is that you're trying to deliver on um, as a media buyer or as a salesperson, you know, trying to understand what a client is trying to achieve, I think that's vital but also what measurement of success is i think sometimes um you know legacy media may get a little bit jumpy at the next that the the newest toy uh in the in the toy box but i actually welcome it because i think it's really important that 
brands do look at other ways of connecting with audiences. But because I, I never think that anything is in isolation. I think that it's from a television perspective, you know, TV and social or TV and outdoor TV and radio um, is probably stronger together. Like uh, that's my media planning days, right? I know that one in isolation isn't the right thing to do. So I think if you can try and understand why somebody's using a new platform or a different platform to what they had been using and what they're trying to deliver, then tackle it that way rather than getting defensive, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I think that's a good call. I mean, it's not the either or, is it? It's more around how can you complement with your channel or your media solution with some of the other things in their mix. Well, there could also be um, partnerships available like as well. So, you know, we're an entertainment business. So if somebody wanted to look at doing something, um, a a campaign with uh, TikTok, for example, you know, what role can we play in generating that content or heroing that content to um, a broader audience as well? So I, I don't think that if you look at it in isolation, then, you know, it will be a lot harder than being a little bit more open-minded and going, all right, well, how do I work together with that publisher? Um, or how do I build on what the client's trying to achieve? Yeah, it's a really good call. I, I also think, you know, you use the, the term jumpy, which is a, which is actually a really apt description where, you know, you hear, you might be hearing about, and let's use TikTok as an example, because they're probably one of the newer, newer players sort of in the market right now. It's like there's a lot of market noise around TikTok, but how much of that is true market signal? You know, there's a disproportionate amount of conversation maybe happening, but that can probably create an impression that they're just all over the market and then all this money is kind of going to them when actually probably it it's not as much as you might think. So sometimes I think just taking a balanced view and, and maybe not sort of going to panic mode um, or not taking something like that as genuine market signal can be really powerful too. Yeah, 100%. And I think, you know... I'd- can tell you my son watches a lot of TikTok and he's right into it. Um, but it's, you, you're right in that, you know, sometimes newer platforms and newer opportunities are going to get a lot more noise because people are really curious and looking for um, as much information as they can get because, again, not many people are going to leap into something without knowing how it works, are other people doing it, what does success look like. It's a really good point. And also, yeah, you're exactly right. There's usually a pretty coordinated push to market and a lot of trade activity and just a lot of activity to actually raise the awareness of a new proposition. So when you're an established media with a known product and proposition and brand, you're not going to to necessarily get that amount of airtime. So how do you be the new shiny toy? You know, what can yeah. what can your business create, whether it's a new product or a new way of connecting with audiences? Um, and be excited about that. You know, you can create your own noise too. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good call because particularly being able to just innovate, you know, people think innovation a lot of the time, they think it's this creating an entirely new thing from scratch and innovation is just about continuous improvement around your core business. So how do you continually strive to kind of improve what it is you're doing and and just really kind of proudly showcase that in market? Here's one that I think is another interesting one um, and I've given it a funny name too and it's kind of actually, I'm probably hanging a uh, I'm, I'm having a, a bit of a hard time with this because I actually drink oat milk in my coffee these days too. But I've got the the inner city oat milk latte drinker. Now this one is not directed solely at media agencies. I actually think media agencies come can sometimes get unfairly kind of branded with being a bit too, too disconnected from Middle Australia or being told they live in a bubble. But this one is more for the clients, any client who plans and buys media to reach an audience that actually looks nothing like them take their own media consumption habits and their own beliefs and use that to actually inform the media plan. Do we come across them? Why do we come across them? And how do we overcome that? 
okay, yes, we do come across those. Um, you know, I've lost a deal because I had the feedback was that the client really likes a particular show and that's really hard when, you know, we felt like we've produced something that's amazing for to respond to a brief. Um, but if I put my mind back to when I was a media buyer, I used to love seeing my ads in the shows that I would watch that, yeah. you know, and, but fortunately at the time I was the audience that the client was trying to reach. But I think that is a pretty common, as I said before, like if you're like getting a brief and going, okay, I think I know how I'm going to respond to this before I even do the work that, that happens all the time. And there was research um, produced, I think, out of the UK and out of Australia as well about the difference between what we think people do in terms of their media consumption behaviour and how many hours they spend on certain platforms, et cetera, versus what they really do. Um, and that is that is difficult if people are set in their ways. But I do think that most, most um, and if not all, clients and, and media buyers, you know, they're relying on data more than ever to make decisions around getting a better result for their media dollars. So I, I would hope that that's a, um, a myth now just because of the amount of data that is out there. But, you know, I think maybe a, a few years ago it might have been there, but maybe not so much now. The data definitely helps um, to substantiate. I still think sometimes sentiment or perception can, um, can lead them to be a little cynical about the data at times. You know, I think, for example, um, you know, travel, interstate travel, you know, we we kind of now know that's back on the cards, but it's probably been back on the cards for a while. It's just that people have gone to airports and seen it for themselves. Like those those types of things where the data's telling something, but unless people actually go and observe it or genuinely feel like the data is reinforcing something they know to be true, sometimes that can be a challenge, I find. But particularly if the data has a delay, right? So if yeah. there's if you're not in a media business that has daily data or even weekly data, then yeah, there will be a delay on that. And you're expecting people to use a bit of gut feel or even personal view on what's going on. Um, so I guess that that is a bit of a challenge if the data isn't up to date. Um, that's like, you know, I think there was some Roy Morgan research that if you had been using in, you know, at the end of 2020, um, if, well, kind of mid to end of 2020, it would have said there were still lots of people planning on going on overseas trips, but they, they literally couldn't do that. But because the data does isn't a daily, um, uh, I guess, check-in, then it, you've got to kind of question it every now and then. Yeah, have to have that common sense filter. You're exactly right. And I think that particular type of, of scenario when media salespeople are coming up against uh, against that, a lot of it to me is actually just calling it out too. Like I know the TV industry, I know definitely do it um, in a good way of, of going, well, this is, you know, this is not how uh, a 25 year old media buyer in Bondi might consume the medium, but this is fundamentally how, you know, the, the vast majority of audience in this target demographic do. I think sometimes just being able to really own that and just call that elephant out is actually in a respectful and, and appropriate way is actually the, the easiest way to tackle those challenges too. 100%. And I, I feel bad for Bondi people because they do often get, um, you know, categorised into that group. But, um, I, you know, if you know your data too and you know your audiences, and one thing that I think sometimes we make as a mistake as media salespeople is we expect that a media buyer or a client knows as much about our audience as we do. They just don't. They don't have the time. They don't have the, the resources to spend you know, half an hour a day or an hour a day analysing, you know, who's growing in audience share, what programs are trending really well, what do our digital extensions look like. So it's really up to you to keep telling your customers 
um, you know, what you believe your story is because you just can't rely on everyone to know as much as what you do. It's just, it's actually not possible. You know, a media buyer would have so many people coming at them, a media planner, a strategist, they just can't retain all that information. So you've got to do your best to have a really clear message around what is your audience story? What's your USP? Um, and make sure you're not getting lost in some of the fluff sometimes that we do in sales pitches and that you're getting your point across really well and really clearly about what your audience benefit is. I love it. Well, here's the next one. The best mates with a competitor. Now, this one's definitely broad. Um, they could quite literally be best mates with a direct media rep, or it could be an agency or a client that has just a very strong, very established relationship with a competing media organization. Um, you know, personally, and I'm, I'm sure you probably know this too from working in multiple markets, um, particularly when you're moving markets or you've moved back to a market, it can sometimes be a real challenge to forge those early working relationships if there's already some really good pre-established relationships between a client and another media body. This, this type of media bias, uh, I guess it's more relationship than bias, but how do you suggest media salespeople coming up against this might um, sort of interpret and translate a bit of a plan around around this dynamic? Yeah, that is a really challenging one because our industry, one of the best parts of it is the relationships that you build. You know, I loved my time in Brisbane. I made some really good friends and, you know, broadened my network, then came back to Sydney and broadened it again and had to work a bit harder to create new relationships. So there was a lot of people I already knew from before, but then other people I didn't know. And really, you've got to invest the time and you've got to have a genuine care about the people that you're working with and talking to. Because if you come in and you try and be friends with everyone and you actually don't really care about you know, what their challenges are, or you're not interested in getting to know them, they'll see through it. And they're not going to want to waste their time either. So you've got to invest the time. Um, one other piece of advice I'd give is doing like a little bit of a relationship map exercise and looking at who are the key people that you should be having good relationships with and plan it out. How are you going to build those relationships? And you don't have to be best mates with everybody. If they see that by working with you, um, you produce great outcomes for their clients and you can look at new solutions and you'll go the extra mile for them, then they'll want to work with you um, because everyone's KPI and getting great results. If you, you know, if people want to give all their money to their mates and they're not getting a great return for their client, they'll work out pretty quick that that's probably not the best thing to do. But I think, you know, it comes up to the individual to make sure they're investing that time strategically um, and that there is, you know, authenticity in the relationship that they're trying to build because otherwise people will just see through it and they'll just think you're after their money. Yeah, exactly. And it's, I think it's actually more of a strategic exercise too sometimes in relationship because sometimes you can, you can really just come in and respectfully go, acknowledge you've got a great relationship here looks like you're getting great results i just think we can we can bring something to the table here and maybe these are the areas that are a little bit unique to us that maybe we can do something so i think it's a really good call out that you know relationship is often driven because there's a great uh, partnership there and there's there's some great work being done and they just don't want to unsettle that I think the biggest mistake you could do is try and criticize somebody else's relationship too. Yeah. Because I just think you're just going to get somebody offside really quickly. And I think one other part of this, a build on it, I would say is, you know, sometimes you get, you establish relationships at different levels, right? And then sometimes you get people who only want to deal with the more senior person or someone that they, you know, have known for a long time. But some advice I'd give there, and it was someone, some, some advice that someone just gave me before actually was around making sure that, you know, you, you talk to your customer and say, 
I understand that you're, you've got a good relationship with this person, but I'm a lot closer to your business and I can deliver a much better outcome for you if we work closely together. Um, the person that, you know, you're trying to engage with, um, you know, pro- probably can't spend as much time on it, but I'm here for you. I'm, I'm your direct contact. Um, and I'll do whatever I can to make sure we can deliver on whatever you need. So I think that's, that's sometimes a challenge too. Um, but you just have to have that confidence to kind of approach it in a really proactive way um, and be really solutions focused. Because if it's if it's having a gripe or um, saying you've got a problem with something just for the, you know, because you've got a problem with it, people won't listen. You've got to make sure that you've got a reason and a solution as to, you know, how you can move forward. Such a good call. And definitely that relationship transfer element is, is important too. If the client has a tendency to want to deal with somebody else, I'm, I'm sure the person who sort of manages the relationship you know, really would see it in their best interest to kind of help build and establish that working relationship between yourself and the client as well. So, And really yeah, good, good salespeople one. and really good client people know how to balance a good relationship and know when to bring in people who can get the work done um, and experts in their field. Like if you try and hold all those relationships to yourself, you'll go insane because you just can't possibly get all the market coverage and do a great job for everybody. It's just not possible. Okay, the next one. Uh, the political player. So um, this one's a hard one to describe, but I kind of put, I'll fathom a guess that someone who's a passionate reader of The Guardian is a little reluctant to do an ad buy in Sky News and vice versa. So a really extreme example again, but I guess people who work in media and advertising, they're fans of media, they consume media. It's likely that a publisher whose content or medium or opinions you know, are familiar and resonate with that person are potentially going to be favoured. What do you think about this this particular one? Is this something you come across, you know, um, regularly yourself? No, I haven't, like, in, in my role here, no. Um, but I do understand what you're saying because I think it is, you know, you've got to have conviction in your own morals and ethics. And if some if you feel that, you know, working with a publisher is the is going to jeopardise that or somebody feels like, you know, you as a publisher have that, you know, negative sentiment with a media buyer, you've just got to turn it around. My only advice would be to turn it around to being about the audience um, and the benefit for the brand because, you know, I, I think, again, it kind of comes back to the, what did you call it, an inner city oat milk latte drinker. <laughs> You're not your audience. They're not doing the same thing as you. They don't think the same way as you. So if you can turn it around so that it's about the customer, the, sorry, the, the viewer or the listener or the reader and what and have insights around those people, um, then that's probably your best bet. It's a really good call. You know, it's funny. One of the things that I can remember having a lot of dialogue um, around, particularly when I worked in more sort of content businesses, was often the most polarizing personalities or these very kind of um, these quite edgy programs or content actually drive a lot of engagement with the audience, you know, like, and, and good or bad, sometimes actually it's it's sort of irrelevant, you know, like, I know Talkback Radio was a good example of like, that's a real lean in medium and it really charges people up and fires them up. And, and so that level of engagement can translate to your advertising effectiveness and just the memorability. So sometimes you can actually weaponize that a little bit too and, and make that feel like a bit of a USP. Yeah, I would say also the other thing is, if it becomes a trend, right, if you've got if you've got buyers or clients who are, there's a few people saying it, that they've got an issue with um, a particular piece of content or a, um, a personality or something like that, then you actually do need to gather that evidence and provide that to your senior management because 
if it does mean that it's going to impact on your ability to hit targets or, you know, revenue for the business, this is from a sales perspective, then you're going to have to get that evidence and present it back to the business because I think sometimes, you know, if it's a personal thing, then that's one thing. But if you do start to see that there's a bit of a trend emerging, it is your responsibility to say, hang on a second, we've got a problem here. Um, and here's the evidence that goes goes to my points around, you know, we, we're struggling to do X, Y, Z because of, you know, a piece of content or a person or whatever that may be. It's a really good call out, Nat. I would absolutely agree. And I think you're right. It's It's got to be around documenting it unemotionally and it not being about sentiment, it, it more being evidence-based. Okay, we're on to the last one, and it's the once burnt, twice shy. So sometimes the bias that's probably most difficult to overcome, and I definitely think anyone selling media direct um, for a period of time will encounter this, is a client who once liked your medium, probably once ran a campaign on your medium, but had a really bad experience when advertising on the medium, and suddenly you're somewhat on the back foot because they've got a level of reluctance to kind of dive in again uh, what do we think is the approach for this particular type of advertiser? I think that is a really hard one because sometimes the media channel may get the blame for a campaign under delivering. But this, as we yep. all know, there's a lot of factors that go into a marketing campaign, whether that's creative, whether it's, um, you know, if there's a retail offer or whatever a call to action may be. I think if you can try and understand what the um, the challenge was around why does somebody think that a campaign didn't work with you or they had a bad experience, tackle that head on and look at, well, okay, what could we do differently to try and get a better result? I would say it would be difficult to just go in cold and say, hey, we we know that this wasn't great, but why don't we try this next time? I think you'll probably have to look at putting some skin in the game yourself and, you know, say we want to try and de-risk this for you and give it another go. Um, if we change this, this and this, we believe this is going to get a better outcome. Um, and I think that that's just the reality because if market is not going to invest their money again somewhere where they think they're not going to get a good result, that's too risky. So you've got to try and find a way to overcome where they think the barriers were um, and then put forward something that is going to be really compelling and encourage them to come back and make sure you can track the performance of that campaign because what you don't want to happen is that you go in and you go, all right, well, we'll change this, we'll do this, we'll, we'll give you value here to make sure that it delivers on X, Y, Z. And then it happens and then you don't know how it went. And they went, mm, I'm not so sure. We're just going to go do something different next time. So make sure that you understand what those KPIs are and that you get that feedback on the way through. It's a really good call. And I know in particular when you're prospecting for new business, particularly in direct media sales, you know, that can be a, a pretty a pretty easy objection for a client to put up. You know, oh, we've tried TV advertising. It didn't work. Or we've we've advertised with you in the past and it you know didn't work. And I think you're exactly right. Like sometimes it just really comes down to that consultative approach of really kind of going, well, you know, we we build these campaigns every day. I'd love to come out and just do an audit of the past campaign, get an understanding of where things probably did go wrong or if there was anything that was a bit deficient in the campaign or the creative or whatnot. Um, it takes a bit of finesse, but I think that's definitely a really a really interesting one to probably have a bit of a strategy for overcoming and and. I'd say this out of all of these, this one feels probably the most common for direct media sales is is the burnt the burnt advertiser. One thing with television, right, is if you come in today and say, I want to get a campaign on air tomorrow and I want to buy, you know, a hundred tarps, it, um, you know, we we all run pretty full. So you're not going to get the best possible campaign away. You're going to get whatever's left 
Same thing can happen yeah. on radio. Same thing can happen in outdoor. If someone comes in late and they've, you know, you've only got, you know, maybe you, I don't know how you categorize your outdoor sites, but if it was like, um, you know, your tier two, three and four sites, the campaign's not going to deliver as much as, you know, it could if you were using it to the best of its ability. And that's one yeah. thing that I certainly find a challenge sometimes, particularly when clients have really short lead times, because if you're not using the platform for what it's designed to do and expecting to get the same result if you had it booked it four months earlier, then that's a really big challenge. So I think also managing expectations up front is really important. Um, and that's not to diminish the value of your um of your platform, but it's just to kind of make sure that there aren't any surprises and take the client along on the journey. And it's, you know, if I can't get you, you know, the four of the 10 things that you want, um, I can get you the six and maybe I can tweak this and this, but I just, you just need to be really clear and upfront about it. I think, you know, if you try and sell someone something that's not going to be to what their expectations are and it doesn't work, well, what did you expect's going to happen? Do you know what I mean? Of course. Yeah. And I think it, it, it almost feels like it's at odds sometimes because, you know, in a in a very competitive environment, in a in a very performance based role like media sales, where you are accountable for a number, often you kind of want to remove barriers to converting revenue, and sometimes it feels like you might be putting things in jeopardy by raising those types of concerns. But I think you know, again, it comes down to if you're playing the long game and you're really thinking about your reputation, there's nothing to be lost from actually raising those potential kind of uh, things as just a just a consideration. Just look, hey, listen trading this late, we're going to do our very best to optimize and get as much away as we can. But here's some of the areas where, you know, you're going to have to be comfortable to make some sacrifices for these reasons. And next time, here's what we'd advise. Like, that's a pretty good way to just kind of socialize that idea of, you know, this campaign is not going to be getting away 100% as prescribed due to these forces and factors. And like, we're all going to do our best, right, to make sure that it's the best possible campaign. Of course. I should always say, there's always a bales, just got to call and try and get them. <laughs> yeah, exactly um, right. We're never, never sold out, as we say, but um, it's, um, it is it is a bit of a challenge. And I think, as you said, you play the long game and you're much better for it. You're going to build those stronger relationships. And then all of a sudden, guess what? You've made some, you know, stronger client connections and they'll make, maybe they'll say, okay, well, you know, I've got this other campaign coming up in three or four months. Why don't we start working on it now? Oh, that's amazing. You're exactly right. Well, look, to wrap the main topic up, I want to call out the worst form of media bias and the worst offenders in my view. And this is somebody who nobody likes to deal with. It's the tone deaf, self-obsessed, evangelistic, dogmatic media sales professional who thinks that any other media channel or publisher, but their own is completely inferior. So, just don't be that don't be that person <laughs> would be the way to wrap this up um, and I think we've met those people before Nat haven't we uh, yeah just really getting a little bit too high on their own supply is how I would um, how I would kind it's of it's good to be passionate but you've got to listen and you've got to you know understand that you're not the only only media partner that a client works with I think that's the other thing right you've got to you never want people to not be passionate but um, you've always always got to be listening and being self-aware. Pepper the enthusiasm. Yeah. I can't ask my sales manager that. Listen to question time. This one comes from a gentleman in South Africa, which is really cool. Uh, and here is the question. Hey, Jamie, we're based in South Africa. And our largest challenge continues to be the impact of big, new, shiny digital toys and how to present our core offerings in a way that integrates traditional and digital. This is usually not about campaign effectiveness, Rather, to meet the agency's planner's excitement quota, any suggestions here would be great. 
This one feels pretty universal. I know they're from South Africa, but this this one sort of reads to me like like issues we probably have here in Australia too. What's your initial impression reflecting on that question, Nat? Oh my gosh, I the excitement quota, I would jump on that so hard and go, how do I create that excitement factor for you with the backing of a legacy media that has robust measurement, that has big audiences and high engagement, I would be all over that excitement quota like a rash and trying to show how I can help the agency deliver on that rather than trying to combat it. That's what I would be going after and that excites me. I'd love an excitement quota. If there's anyone out there that's got those, let me have a crack at it. Yeah, I really like that phrase. I actually found that a really good way of summarising it and and I actually do agree with you. I think, you know, sometimes like just drawing the lines of digital and legacy media can be the issue. Like selling an integrated solution or having an idea at the core or, or just selling media, why do we just tend towards having to refer to it as legacy or digital? Why don't we just bring a solution to the bear that actually has multiple platforms or multiple touch points? So to me, sometimes I actually think really being able to just kind of take the distribution method or the actual media channel, whether it's analog or digital, out of the mix and just talk around content delivery or talk around distribution, but actually link it with a strong central idea that's exciting. That to me kind of feels like the territory I'd, I would advise this person maybe tries to play in a bit more. Yeah. And I think, you know, television's a really good example here because a lot of people don't even have an antenna anymore, right? So when they're watching Seven News Live, they're watching it through a connected TV. So yeah. it's the same device, but it's classified as a digital channel because of the way that that content is distributed. So I think the the lines are blurring between what's considered traditional or we like to call it proven media also is another way to refer to it um, in terms of proven performance and also digital. Like the, the lines are blurring. I bet you if you ask your uh, customers that you're going after, and, and by that I mean like a viewer or a listener or a reader, they don't consider themselves as engaging in digital channels versus legacy channels. That's something that we try and create and silo ourselves yeah. as an industry. And if you're taking an audience-first approach, then linear slash traditional slash legacy versus digital shouldn't exist, really, because I bet you if you go and ask your parents about, you know, do you do you engage in digital media, they're probably like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I would say my son as well, he, he's just like, no, I watch this or I do this or I do that. We've got to stop siloing audiences. It's madness. We've got to go audience first. That's what we have to do as an industry and we'll all be much better for it. Yeah, no, I completely, completely agree. And I think, you know, the legacy media, you know, or the proven media, as you say, again, I just come back to it's really, really easy to kind of think that innovation or or something new and exciting has to be kind of a digital bolt-on or an extension versus just a really different way of thinking about your core inventory. Like just packaging things differently or using inventory differently or kind of getting into the weeds about a way to really optimize something that you're doing. Like sometimes that type of innovation is actually the thing that gets the excitement quota up for people because they don't live that you know they don't see the dark arts like they don't understand the way that a campaign's put together the way we do um and we kind of think of our inventory a lot of the time just in very kind of linear terms as opposed to being able to present it and package it in different ways so my advice for this person is is also just like really think about some ways you can kind of give a bit of an edge to how you sell your your core business um and, and think of some new and fresh ways to maybe bring that to market yeah 100 percent 
Well, it's been really fun getting into this with you, Nat. I know we have to keep it brief because I, I have a looming deadline and you run a sales team of about 7,000 people. But is there any any parting thought here um, just on this particular topic of overcoming media bias that maybe the people listening can take away and, and try to put into practice this week? My advice would be take a step back. Don't make it personal yourself because we're all guilty of doing that. Know your numbers and know your audiences and what your unique selling point is and make sure that your customers know that too. Um, don't expect that they know as much as you do about your audience or your platform. So it's up to you to make sure that you're spruiking your wares the best that you possibly can. Nat Harvey, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much. Mm-hmm.